to the Hollywood to Hollywood podcast with your hosts, Emma D'Souza, myself, who is from Derry, and Jake D'Souza, who is from California, Los Angeles. We are coming to you every week with topical issues on history, politics, pop culture, all kinds of stuff. And this week we are going to be talking about the Good Friday Agreement, which some may know is something that's quite close to our hearts. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of this episode, I want to remind our listeners that we are currently not ad-based, and if anyone would like to support the podcast, you can do so via our Patreon. Now, let's get started. The Good Friday Agreement. Now, the reason we wanted to do an episode on the Good Friday Agreement was because of the recent passing of John Hume. Some may know that he was, in essence, Ireland's peacemaker and an architect of the Good Friday Agreement. John Hume believed in peace and reconciliation at a time when such ideas seemed impossible. He gave hope to an entire generation, my generation, that peace was more than a dream. It was, in fact, possible, and it was ours if only we reached out and grabbed it. John Hume was, of course, a key architect of the Good Friday Agreement, an international peace treaty between the Irish and British government that brought peace to a region fractured by decades of violence and conflict. It was the culmination of years of extensive negotiations that required the intervention of the Irish, British and United States governments in order to convince the vast majority of regional political parties to take a profound leap of faith which thankfully they did. It was put to a referendum on the 22nd of May in 1998, where 71% of the population of Northern Ireland and 94% of the population of Ireland voted for the landmark agreement. It's considered a beacon of what is possible through peace and cooperation. And yet, over two decades on, many of the rights-based provisions remain unimplemented, something that we as a family know all too well. And with that, Jake, will you introduce our case? Sure. Um, Our case began when Emma and I got married. Uh, Emma submitted an application to bring me into Northern Ireland as the spouse of an EU national or the EEA route. Uh, The application was subsequently denied on pretty flimsy grounds to begin with, uh, which I hardly even remember the specifics of. Suffice to say, uh, they weren't justified, so we appealed. We were at that time totally under the assumption that the denial was just a run-of-the-mill clerical error or bureaucratic bungle. Uh, It was only after we got a second denial letter citing uh, Emma's Irish nationality as the grounds that we were even made aware that this denial was merely the tip of the iceberg, for lack of a less Belfast-centric quip, of a much, much bigger issue. Neither of us were, until that time, aware of how pervasive the rights abuses committed by the British government and Home Office were in Northern Ireland, and it was that flagrant disregard for the birthrights of the people of Northern Ireland that more or less forced us to shed our once blissfully politically unmotivated coats for those of a couple who watch the news and keep up with political discourse. Much to my dismay, because I thrive on trash TV and video games. It was tough coming to terms with the idea that Emma was going to pursue a degree in politics, but I console myself with the idea that she's definitely one of the good ones. 
But after that, we both had to learn a lot about the Good Friday Agreement, Irish and British law, and how they intertwine to form the complex and the both stagnant yet ever-evolving nature of the Northern Irish political and social landscape. So, long story long, Emma, the denial of your application for the spousal visa for my entrance into the United Kingdom as the spouse of an EU national uh, was more or less the catalyst for everything that has come about since for us. It was tough to grapple with the idea that the British government had been denying individuals and citizens of Northern Ireland their birthrights for such a long time, uh, and that not only have they denied those birthrights, but have continued to justify their actions and lack of legislation, uh, even in the face of a concession, especially when just over the border, the Irish government had implemented these same birthright provisions into their own legislation over a decade ago, um, I think within a year of the Good Friday Agreement being finalized. And it was the fact that the British government, as co-guarantors of the agreement, neglected their obligation to implement these birthrights into their own legislation that was just such a shock to uh, come to terms with. And yes, the point to make also is that all Irish and EU citizens in the United Kingdom have the ability to bring in their family members under EU law. So this became a point of contention for us because here I was, an Irish citizen born in Northern Ireland, who under the Irish constitution is an Irish citizen, and also who under the Good Friday Agreement has a birthright to identify as and be accepted as Irish or British or both as I so choose and I had evidently chosen to be Irish. So as an Irish citizen, I expected to be able to access the same rights and entitlements as all other Irish citizens in the United Kingdom. But according to the Home Office, that was going to be a no. So we then went to court for what ended up being a very lengthy court case. So we both did our homework and researched the Good Friday Agreement, albeit Emma did quite a bit more reading of the Good Friday Agreement than uh, I did. But well, to be fair now, it's only 38 pages. <laughs> that's that's 38 more pages than I'm used to. <laughs> so my, my understanding of the Good Friday Agreement is that uh, and I would say this is likely the understanding which many people have uh, inferred from the Good Friday Agreement, is that it awards all citizens, uh, or rather all the people of Northern Ireland, which I think translates basically to anybody born within the six counties of Northern Ireland, uh, who are born of either an Irish or British or settled parent, the right to identify and to be accepted as either Irish, British, or both. It helped solidify and bring peace to a region which for decades had been engulfed in turmoil and struggle between uh, mainly two divided uh, sections of the population uh, and was able to find a way of 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 a compromise and bringing a middle ground uh, where both sides of the divide, of course, made concessions, but also recognized 
the the importance of working together. That's right. And uh, you're right to highlight how important that provision is because it represents equality between the two main communities of Northern Ireland. And it represents a free choice to ensure there's no detrimental or differential treatment between anyone who identifies as Irish or British or who opts to have both. So it really was a fundamental part of the Good Friday Agreement. And yet it is not mentioned in domestic UK law. In fact, through your case, we discovered that the British government is still operating under the 1981 British Nationality Act, which is where our case came into play, because under the British Nationality Act 1981, anyone born in the United Kingdom to a parent who is a British citizen or an Irish citizen or settled is therefore a British citizen at birth. So that's everyone born in Northern Ireland. You would, of course, have expected that they would have amended this legislation after the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, but they did not. So what's your views on the Good Friday Agreement, Jake? Now that you've had five years of hearing the Good Friday Agreement, probably on a near daily basis. I mean, how many times do you think you've uttered the words Good Friday Agreement? Too many times. But yeah, it's obviously a singular and hugely important document. And I find it in such bad form that there are people within the community who choose to warp the language of something so benevolent and inclusive to fit their own restrictive and exclusionary narrative. Like, if you were just to read it literally, there isn't much ambiguity as to what the authors intended the reader to glean. That's right. When you have to perform such serious mental gymnastics to create a connection between two completely separate provisions or to insert an entirely different meaning and sentence to a provision, you know you're not doing it right. Exactly. My favorite creative interpretation is definitely the section pertaining to the right to identify and be accepted as Irish or British or both. I will never comprehend how anyone can try and twist that one into a supposed legal right outlined in a formal peace accord binding two nations, granting citizens formal permission to feel like something. It just cracks me up to picture what these people think went down. A bunch of learned, scholarly politicians and diplomats, pen in hand, gathered round the fledgling document, saying, Yes, and on this historic day, at long last, ye shall be gifted unto you the explicit and legally binding right to say you feel Irish today. That's right. No government will be able to dictate to you what personal thoughts and feelings are and are not permissible any longer. Feel Irish and or British to your heart's content, it's your legal right now. And even better, by implication, what does that mean in Northern Ireland? I don't currently have the right to feel like, I don't know, literally anything else besides those three options. Until, of course, some document decides to pop up granting me the privilege of abstract thought. Like, sorry, mate, you sound ridiculous. The treaty gives the people the right to be Irish and be accepted as Irish. Can't get much clearer than that. You'll find in most places around the world, you don't need explicit legal rights to think. Nice try, though. That's right. It's like saying that we have the right to identify as Jedi Knights and that somehow is represented in an international treaty, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Anyone can personally identify as a Jedi Knight. You're perfectly um, welcome to, to identify as a Jedi Knight. Sadly, that's not a nationality and probably won't ever be given legal recognition. And what Jake's talking about here is actually an argument that we encountered a lot over our uh, almost five-year legal challenge. 
So really, the case was about me asserting my rights under the Good Friday Agreement to be accepted as Irish and not British, and to be able to access my rights as an EU citizen to bring in my husband, Jake. A common argument that we encountered, and was the argument actually put forward by the British Home Office, was that the Good Friday Agreement provides people a right to feel Irish or British or both. But that's not the same as a right to hold citizenship. Of course, this argument is not in the Good Friday Agreement, nor does it exist anywhere in previous policies or legislation, nor is it supported by the Northern Ireland's political parties or the Irish government, of course, except the DUP, who notably were the only political party to oppose the Good Friday Agreement. I was 11 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, obviously far too young to vote, but of course it has become an integral part of my being today. I had no way of knowing then just how important the Good Friday Agreement would be in my life growing up. All I understood before her court case was that the people of Northern Ireland had a right to be Irish or British or both, and I always saw this as a great privilege. I traveled abroad a lot when I was younger, and I often cited that about how we had this great privilege in that we could be Irish or British or both. And I was, of course, Irish. When our court case began, I became much more knowledgeable about the Good Friday Agreement and how it interacts with society today. I now see the Good Friday Agreement as my guiding principle, and I look to the Good Friday Agreement as a roadmap in terms of adhering to the principles of mutual respect, equality, and parity of esteem. I look at the Good Friday Agreement and I see a great vision of a rights-based society of equals. And I want to see that society because I love my home and I would love to see it in the manner in which people like John Hume envisioned it. And I think that one of the most difficult things of her case has been discovering just how little of the Good Friday Agreement has been given domestic legal effect. And uh, in relation to that, due to the lack of, of domestic legal effect, it has had a trickle-down effect on the people of Northern Ireland where certain portions of the population look down upon those who seek to try and uh, see the Good Friday Agreement upheld to the level that it was meant by those architects such as John Hume and, and otherwise, where people like ourselves and anyone else who has tried to highlight the clear imbalances in the way that Irish... Catholic, what have you, individuals in Northern Ireland are treated legally or domestically or socially compared to the way that Protestant British identifying individuals have. It's seen as uh, making a non-issue. That's right. I'm a difficult woman making a non-issue. <laughs> exactly. It's And again, it's only a portion of the population, but it's a very vocal minority. And that vocal minority... Uh, has the ability to sway public opinion uh, about something which should never have been a problem in the first place had the British government uh, done its own people the service of implementing these these uh, bits of legislation which they were ob obligated to do when they signed this treaty. It's, it's really the flagrant disregard for their obligations uh, in an internationally binding treaty is is really disheartening and and deeply concerning 
because if they're willing to do this and 20 years on still pretend that they're this was their right not to implement these uh, changes and and uh, birthrights and, and and the like, then what else is this government uh, freely capable of doing without seeing any sort of uh, consequence and doing so confidently and with the support of, of, again, though a minority, a very vocal minority, support wholeheartedly the efforts of the British government and the Home Office to do a disservice to its own people of Northern Ireland. some may know, is now over. After a five-year legal challenge, the British Home Office and the government conceded to her original argument, which was, of course, a very momentous day that neither of us have really fully managed to process yet. But that concession was only really a partial concession. Her case, of course, drew up a lot of issues around the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement birthright provisions. And what the government did to try and um, resolve her case was to resolve the immigration aspect of her case. Now, what this means is that for the first time, the definition under the Good Friday Agreement of a relevant person of Northern Ireland is in domestic UK law. This does set a precedent for recognition for the birthright provisions of the Good Friday Agreement. And it means that all the people of Northern Ireland, whether they are Irish or British or both, can access more favourable family reunion rights as a result of her case. However, the wider issues around citizenship implementation and the British Nationality Act 1981 have not been resolved. So there is still outstanding issues that we will, of course, continue to try and resolve. And on that, there is, of course, many outstanding issues in relation to the Good Friday Agreement. We have seen two decades on that there is still no Bill of Rights and legacy remains an issue that is deeply unresolved. One example which I find particularly distasteful is the repression of the Irish language in Northern Ireland. The language spoken for generations by the native inhabitants of this island should be considered by all sides of the community as a proud element of its history, deserving not only preservation but propagation. Coming from the United States, those who belittle and seek to erase the Native American culture in place of what they, as descendants of colonists, perceive to be their land, their America, these sorts of people are not well regarded, to put it lightly, domestically or internationally, and do not pose to represent the modern or progressive values of their nation. I can't wrap my head around the fact that major politicians and representatives of certain unionist parties who claim to represent unionism as a whole are so threatened by their island's culture and history that they seek to flat out remove it. These paid representatives who claim to speak for the communities of Northern Ireland that identify as British, the mind you, once imperialist nation who forcibly took this island from its native people, bringing bloodshed and famine, can without ridicule and shame proudly presume to squash the oral legacy of those they oppressed. And they can just say this regressive shit and get electoral votes. This awful rhetoric has no place in a modern westernized society. In the U.S., each year we celebrate Thanksgiving in the spirit of togetherness and respect for the bonds between the Native Americans and the colonists. 
family, community. Here, each year, we burn Irish flags and Irish effigies atop massive pyres of flame to celebrate war. It blows my mind. And I guess that's the benefit to being an outsider from Northern Ireland. Many of the practices and the politics of Northern Ireland really are quite insular and wouldn't be accepted in many modern democracies, such as the United States of America. Of course, there are minorities in every society that will try to achieve division and segregation. But for the most part, most democracies manage to hold it together and to uh, strive for equality, not to try and dredge up inequality. Really, when we talk about the lack of rights-based provisions, the lack of a Bill of Rights, really the lack of much of what was promised in the 1998 Good Friday Agreement actually being achieved by 2020, I think that part of the reason for that is that there was such a relief to get the Good Friday Agreement across the line that at the time, everyone shook hands and pat each other on the backs and were like, well done, congratulations, and saw this project as really being done. But in reality, the Good Friday Agreement was just the start. It was only the beginning of a process to heal divisions in this society. And much of that work hasn't been done yet. And it's fallen to people such as ourselves and the next generation to try and drag this society forward to bring forward that uh, vision of a rights-based society. And it would be great if we could do that soon. You know, it's taken over two decades to get to barely anything. I mean, how much longer do we have here? The Irish government are co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement and have been very helpful in her own case. The newly elected Taoiseach Michal Martin has made quite a few remarks about the Good Friday Agreement and has reaffirmed the Irish government's commitment. He has talked about beefing up or talked up the uh, institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. But one does have to ask, are the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement really working? Since 1998, the Assembly has collapsed five times. I mean, that doesn't sound like something that's really working. Whilst reaffirming the Irish government's commitment to the Good Friday Agreement, the Taoiseach has caused some alarm by stating that the concept of a border pool would be divisive. Now, of course, the border pool or referendum on reunifying the island of Ireland is part of the Good Friday Agreement. And if you're going to be committed wholly to the Good Friday Agreement, well, then surely you're also committed to this part of the Good Friday Agreement, which is not seen as divisive. It's also worth noting that referendums, by their very nature, are divisive. That's perfectly acceptable. The point of, of democracy is that people get to have their say. Exactly. And you can't pick and choose which aspects of the treaty you'll commit to while neglecting to honor others. It defeats the entire premise of the document. It's a disservice to the spirit of the treaty, and it's a mirror reflection of the issues inherent with the British government's failure to legislate the birthright provisions because they don't suit their agenda. That's not how binding peace accords work. Some of the language of the newly appointed Taoiseach reads to me like he doesn't personally recognize the Good Friday Agreement as the temporary placeholder it was designed to be, and instead more as some sort of static, lasting settlement, which, in his words, requires yet another new generation of politically motivated people to flesh out the details. Rather than giving recognition to the people who have for years dedicated themselves to seeing realized all aspects of the agreement as its architects intended, without 
preferential prioritization or alternative interpretations by omission. He's also made clear referendum won't even be considered within his term. Again, he's not taking into account the whole of the GFA. It's not up to him. It's up to the people. That's right. I mean, in the agreement, it does state that the people of this island will be entitled to have their say as the constitutional future. And whilst the Taoiseach's remarks um, are welcome in the support for the Good Friday Agreement, they do raise questions. Because one, of course, could argue that there already has been an entire generation that's come up since 1998. People such as myself would not have been able to vote in 1998, but would certainly like to have a say today as to the future of this region. 20... Two years seems like a pretty reasonable time. And considering the Brexit referendum, which, of course, Northern Ireland voted to remain as part of the EU, there is an increased call for potentially a referendum on unity. Our concern and the concern of many within civic society is that if you don't see that as something that's possible in the near future, then you're not going to be ready for when it comes. And we don't want to see another Brexit referendum where there's no research um, done into what a yes or no vote will mean. Or that research being shared with the population. As I know, Emma, you've said to me before uh, that you would like to see this information illustrated in much the same way that the Good Friday Agreement was uh explained clearly in documents sent out to was it the entire the people of the entire island of ireland that's right everyone got a copy of the good friday agreement to their household and i think that that's really important and it's it's something to look at in terms of how do you address unity um it should be fully fleshed out what would a yes vote mean and preparing for the possibility of reunification will realistically require years of research And considering the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has the sole ability to call a border poll, it would be sensible for the Irish government and for other institutions and bodies to be conducting research into what a referendum would mean. It's not divisive to be prepared. I mean, what's that saying? Um, Prepare, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. There (laughs) we go. I like that. (laughs) Um. And on that point of um, what a future United Ireland would look like, we will obviously address that in a a longer um, podcast episode. But just to bring back in a little bit about our own case, it's a point that we have been trying to make um, consistently for years now, that implementing the birthright provisions of the Good Friday Agreement into UK citizenship law actually protects everyone's rights in Northern Ireland. Totally. A lot of people tend to paint our motives and our actions as those which serve to further purely Republican agendas, and that's just never been the case. Evidence most recently by the British government's concession we fought to achieve. Because of our case, British people born in Northern Ireland now have rights and freedoms unavailable to British citizens anywhere else in the UK. It's really cool. Not to mention, there was a point way back during the beginning stages of our court case where, following the passing of my grandmother, when the British government refused to let me fly home to be with her and subsequently bury her, at that time, the government made clear to me that if I wanted to grieve with my family in the States, they might finally consider relinquishing my unjustly withheld passport back to me, but in doing so, threatened that there would be no guarantee that they'd permit me to return and rejoin my wife and family in Northern Ireland again. 
when these rights abuses hit headlines, they very quickly and calculatedly 180'd on their stance, sending me quite possibly the fakest, most contrived letter of condolence imaginable, along with an offer of leave to remain within the UK. In essence, finally, albeit temporarily, settling me as a resident here with my wife and allowing me the right to freely leave the country again without being threatened with indefinite separation from my loved ones. At that point, we very easily could have given up our case, ended court proceedings, and saved ourselves years of financial and mental strain, from which we might still never fully recover. But we didn't. We carried on and dedicated ourselves to this cause because nobody should ever be forced to endure this again. We had Irish and British people alike come out and express how their lives had been transformed now that our continued court case had set a precedent, which allowed them to finally be reunited with spouses and children who their government forced apart for years. British people who were threatened with the burden of renouncing their nationality in order to afford to be with the person they love. Violations of the birthrights enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement all. And these atrocious practices have the potential to affect everyone here, and those who try to belittle and misrepresent the changes we fought for are so very privileged to have not yet been unjustly impacted by the rights abuses committed by their government. But at the end of the day, all we care about is preventing anyone, supporters and opponents alike, from experiencing what too many families have already been forced to. This concession was hard fought, and it was for everyone. And to be fair, like we would have continued with court if we had any other uh, options to do so to see the wider issues of citizenship addressed. But the British Home Office had literally conceded to her argument and the point of law that we had taken into the courts so we couldn't proceed. So as we have very briefly discussed, because in reality, if you wanted to talk about many of the outstanding issues that have not been addressed from the Good Friday Agreement, you'd be sitting here all day. So in the brief uh, issues that we have addressed during this episode, I think it's safe to say that much of the work of the Good Friday Agreement remains unimplemented. And that is a very sorry state of affairs. And with the passing of John Hume and Seamus Mallon within six months of each other, it is becoming clear that the need to see the work of the Good Friday Agreement complete now falls to the next generation, er generation, to see that work and vision completed. Thank you for tuning in to uh, our second episode of Hollywood to Hollywood. Uh, we really appreciate your viewership or listenership. I'm not sure what the appropriate nomenclature is, but we appreciate you nonetheless. Uh, thanks for listening and tune in next week for another exciting installment. To close with a quote from John Hume, all conflict is about difference. The answer to difference is to respect it. Therein lies a most fundamental principle of peace, respect for diversity. And that's what we want to see happen here.